This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Listening to 3 RRR 102.7 FM, this is Plato's Cave, your weekly dose of film criticism. It happens every Monday night at 7pm. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined by Josh Nelson and Alexandra Heller. Nicholas Cerise Howard is still away. Good evening to you both. Hi, Thomas. How are you? Yeah, good. Good evening, Thomas. <laughs> Josh, you've been hit Husky. with the thing that's been infecting us all. So. Yes, uh, Kurt Russell will be coming into the studio to assassinate me later on. <laughs> the thing. You just, sorry. No, no, I'm like... <laughs> I, I, really? <laughs> and I'm disturbed at how much I enjoyed that visual. <laughs> now, on tonight's show, um, look, after several special event screenings earlier in this year, that sugar film has now been released on Home Entertainment. It's a documentary by Australian actor Damon Gamo about his quest to get to the bottom of how harmful and prevalent sugar is in our diets. We're then going to have a guest join us. Uh, We'll be joined by film critic for The Age and freelance writer Jake Wilson. He'll be joining us to discuss his new book on the cult 1976 Australian film Mad Dog Morgan. So we're going to chat to Jake about the film that starred Dennis Hopper and David Goldpool, among many others. Um... And, yeah, we'll just look at this strange film that even even today it, it struggles to be neatly categorised. And then at the end of the show, it will be blood and boobs time as we once more open the Hammer Horror vaults. This time we're going to take a look at the recent home entertainment re-release of The Vampire Lovers. This is one of the later Hammer Horror films and it was based on an early vampire novella that even predates Dracula. There you go. Quality source material. (laughs) How does it translate into the finished product? But look, let's start off with that sugar film. Indeed. As you mentioned, Thomas, this is directed by actor-turned-director Damon Gamow, who I guess most people will be familiar with from his work on films such as Balibo and The Tracker. Even we're talking about David Goldblum, there's another link. That was one of his very early films, wasn't it? It was. was I think that was 2001 from memory, so quite early on. That sugar film is a documentary very much in the mould, and it's obviously going to draw this comparison early with Supersize Me, the Morgan Spurlock film. If you remember the the Spurlock documentary that came out a number of years ago, Morgan Spurlock puts himself front and centre in his own documentary and sets out to eat McDonald's three meals a day for, I'm guessing it was a month from from memory. I think it was a month, It's been a while since I've seen it. Well, Damon Gamow approaches the subject of sugar in a similar way, but I guess with a healthy dose of moderation. He undertakes a high fructose diet, but the catch is that he refuses to eat obviously sugar-high or sugar-rich foods such as chocolate and soft drinks. They have to be foods that typically fall under a heart-approved or ones that we wouldn't necessarily consider to be high in sugar. So the do- this is the sort of the central theme about the documentaries. He's just subjecting his body to this diet and monitoring through psychological and, and medical uh, assistance, the effects on his body, and trying to link this to broader uh, social and, and cultural concerns. I think it's a really risky approach for a filmmaker to put themselves front and centre, particularly if you're not entirely likeable. I think, to the to the film's credit, though, I think actually Gamow comes off, a far, particularly in contrast to Spurlock, a far more likeable presence. But the documentary rests so much on that central narrative thread as opposed to a documentary just sort of 
presenting, I guess, some of the issues without themselves in, in the documentary. I think the point where this documentary started to win me over, apart from its visual design, which I think is quite um, energetic and reminded me a lot of the sort of the, those short BBC educational films that we got <laughs> in the 1970s. And there's cameos from um, performers like Stephen Fry and Hugh Jackman in here as well. But it was when uh, Gamow takes the documentary crew to an Indigenous community to look at and, and focus specifically on the effects of a high-sugar diet on Indigenous population, particularly the with the historical background and the historical knowledge that this is a community and communities that typically haven't had high-sugar content within their main food and, and, and drink. And I think that was where I thought this is not only topical, this is really prescient, this is pressing, and I thought that he dealt with that very awkward, raw issue in a really sensitive sensitive manner. And that's when I also, also thought this is an important uh, local documentary. It's not just a, uh, you know, Americans are obese and Australians are obese type of generalised documentary that it could have been, I think, if it had taken a, a far broader approach. And there are elements within, that, within the documentary that do expand the scope and, and the focus of the documentary to overseas issues and, and, and broader concerns in terms of medical research. But on the whole, I actually found this... A, pretty moderate and, and well-rounded documentary. I was, in the end, really impressed by this as well. And I, I think it's a it's a very tricky thing to do. Obviously, Damon Gamo, this is a, a passion of his. And it, I mean, this is an advocacy film. I mean, it, it does feel like more the kind of thing you might watch in a, in a classroom. Yeah, and totally. It's a message film, and it's he has worked really hard to communicate this to the widest possible audience. And I think the release strategy has been fairly canny. I mean, it wouldn't have worked to go um, to have done a big theatrical release. And I think to have a very various event screenings and now the various promotions they're doing surrounding it available on home entertainment is probably the way to go um and it it, you know it does sort of have that slightly twee feel to it at first but i think there's quite a rigorous engagement with the material it reminded me very much of an american documentary i saw maybe one or two years ago called fed up a film that katie corrick was um involved in it was looking again at why americans are now obese and it kind of ends up at the same end point of this film which is the big problem is is sugar and the same kind of conclusion that you know fat has been taken out of so much food and it's been replaced by sugar which has possibly had an even more harmful effect and food companies especially in the US have been extremely aggressive in concealing that fact. You know, it's, it's a similar level to what the tobacco industry has done. And I quite like the fact that this film cut straight to the chase. I mean, Fed Up was great, but it's sort of like it covered all this material to finally get to this kind of end point where this really strove directly to prove this point. It set out its thesis and it went to prove it. I think it's a far more sophisticated film than anything Morgan Spurlock has done. I think Spurlock makes stunt films. You know, saying that you're unhealthy when you eat McDonald's every single day is not a revelation. It doesn't prove anything. Where I think what what Damon Gamow does in this film is quite eye-opening. And like you said, the, the, the real... And I didn't realise this was the deal. You know, he only eats health food. He eats stuff that's packaged and marketed as health food, often for, for children. And, and that gave him this ridiculous increase in in sugar and you know but it isn't just watching him flailing around dealing with that we do get that really great insight into what's happened in some indigenous communities which is discussed in Rolf Dahir's film uh charlie's country it's something the david goldpool character speaks about in that country you know i've got to get off this food um and, and you know when, when they look at the effect of a, a, a town in america where everyone's just addicted to mountain dew you know the success of this corporation of getting everyone onto this soft drink and um the film kind of goes a little bit into exploitive 
sensitive territory there where we get a lot of close-ups of dental work being done on this 17-year-old's mouth. But um, That was horrific. That's the, that's the most extreme case of dentistry on screen that I've seen since... Jeez, what was the... What, the Marathon, Marathon Man. Man. Marathon Man. <laughs> <laughs> that's our go-to extreme <laughs> dentistry film. But um, look, for what it is, I think it's really strong. And this is an important message. And look, it's actually a message I'm very personally invested in as somebody who really, who really struggles with this kind of thing. And I quite like the fact that they pointed out that, you know, not all calories are equal and that that thinking has caused a lot of problem in the long run. And um, look, I actually found it really valuable to get this information and I appreciated the way it was packaged. It was sort of, I suppose, sweetened, if you like. But um, I, you know, this is not going to be the film of the year for me by any means, but I really appreciated what it was doing and how well it communicated its message. I'm going to crash your sugar high, guys. <laughs> I'm here to bring the... Bring, the, bring it down. You're going to be the I, carob of the conversation. I'm going to be the carob. Bye-bye, bliss point. <laughs> that's, that's one of the most singularly unkind things anyone has ever said to me. I'm the carob of Plato's cave. <laughs> oh I, I actually don't mind carobs. So <laughs> but there's a time and place for carob, Alex. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. <laughs> Look, I like you guys, I guess, I have, um, or like you, Thomas, at, at least, I have a kind of general discomfort with the spurlockification of nutritional science, not just in, in film, in documentary film, but kind of across the board. That kind of pop science thing always makes me flinch a little bit. Um, and I do think it really needs to be emphasised that there is a public health emergency around diet, um, a whole as- a whole bunch of aspects around diet that that really this film is very consciously trying to address. And you and you absolutely get the feeling that it's trying to get to the widest possible audience to kind of communicate just some basic facts about nutrition that that have um, not just a a dollar value into the money that is spent in the health industry, but you know it's got a body count. I mean, this this is a really serious issue. It has quite people die you know it's like it's a really serious thing and it doesn't underplay that and i really admire those motives um that being said i um as as a documentary i i found this really patronizing um it was like an hour and a half of being mansplained to i'm sure damon gamo is a nice guy but he just reminded me of one of those people that you meet at a barbecue who who starts every sentence with actually (laughs) and and you know there's i think you'll find actually and that's that's i was just i literally i mean i i i have a i have a genetic propensity to diabetes so i have to look after myself and i'm very conscious of the issues that were raised in this film i found myself carb loading out of spite (laughs) i just i'm craving sugar just because i'm i'm just not enjoying this documentary i'm going to load up on sugar just to prove a point which isn't good that's not a good thing it felt like an after-school special to me. I feel that it will date very quickly. I do think that it had a kind of pizzazz, like in, in its aesthetic style, but it felt very gimmicky to me, and I, it felt that this isn't... I mean, it was really... Tri- yeah, it felt like an after-school special, and it felt like it was aiming for a kind of younger audience, I guess, in in, in that sense. It, it Very, very binary. Um, I mean, I was a bit confused by the ending where he said, well, now I've gone back to my normal diet. I'm going ha- to start eating healthy again, so I'm going to have bacon and eggs for breakfast. It's like, oh, really? I'm not but without sure. The, without the toast. Without the toast. But the oh, bacon's see, oh, fine. I, I love like, that point. That got me very like, excited. Yeah. <laughs> I actually went and had bacon and eggs after having eaten half a chocolate bar during the film. <laughs> I think I do hear what you're saying. It's a really weird film for us to be reviewing, I think, yeah. as film critics. I mean, this isn't the Thin Blue Line. 
line. This isn't capturing the Freedmans. I mean... Oh, no, and I don't think it's trying yeah, to I'm be. I'm not saying you're judging yeah. it like that at all, but um, I, look, I, I do hear what you're saying. It's an educational video. It reminded me of um, Mrs Lovejoy from The Simpsons with the whole Won't Somebody Think of the Children. Oh, nice one. And the way that he... Oh, I think it's harsh. I, I just was really uncomfortable with the way that he used his own family in it, and again, I'm sure that his motives were sincere, but it's like, I'm I'm really worried about the kids of tomorrow. I don't yeah. know why. I don't know why he's the, the crocodile Actually, hunter all of a sudden. Was doing it and while his like, wife was pregnant yeah, was very I'm, spurlocky. I yeah. really, I really care <laughs> about my family and my beautiful, beautiful partner and my beautiful daughter. So I'm going to go overseas and make a documentary and yeah, leave my was pregnant the, partner here. And that was I was a little bit thread. like, this is pretty weird. Yeah, that, I, I think it was just so obvious. It didn't need to be in there. That he was making the same point regardless of the "I'm about to become a father" narrative, which seemed kind of spurlocky. And yeah. um, but I actually wrote down when I was watching it. This feels like a soft educational film. It's soft mm. education, and it is. It's it's which is what reminded me of the those BBC made for kids short documentaries that we'd see in between. Yeah. It all wedged in the afternoon show between That's BBC That's exactly what it reminded me of, too. Yeah, yeah. and, and the, the presence of, of Stephen Fry and it was, was sort of patently 1970s-esque, you know, in the way that was was done. But you're right, maybe we're not the target audience. The target audience is, is children, and maybe children do need to start being aware of this in some way. So it's, a, yeah, it's, it's clearly a, a social means documentary. Yeah. I, I don't want to end on a negative note, though. I really want to emphasise how fantastic it was to hear Depeche Mode's Just Can't Get Enough <laughs> and Seek Sig Sputnik's F111. That was brilliant. That's a different kind of sugary junk food, yes. but that was a special one for me. And I also did really like the stuff in the Indigenous community. I thought that, that tonally, actually, that was quite dramatically different yeah. from the rest of the documentary. Um, if he did a documentary around that sort of style... Um, that would have been a really different kind of that film. Was almost, I was almost more interested, like, tell me more about this. Yeah, that was almost you're good at John Pilger-esque. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, really absolutely. ideologically driven yep. um, and, and not reduced to these kind of binaries that, that the rest of the documentary was. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Now, I suspect most of our listeners will be familiar with Jake Wilson's film reviews, which have appeared in The Age and other Fairfax publications since 2006. Now, as well as writing for many other publications, Jake has also worked as an editor and film programmer, and he has now written the latest book in the Australian Screen Classic series. This series is published by Currency Press in partnership with the National Film and Sound Archive, and Jake's book on Mad Dog Morgan is the latest in this excellent series. Jake, welcome to Triple R and thanks for coming on to Plato's Cave. Oh, hi Thomas, thanks for asking me. Now Mad Dog Morgan is a 1976 Australian film. It starred Dennis Hopper. He was virtually blacklisted in America at the time and in Mad Dog Morgan he plays uh, the 19th century bushranger Dan Morgan. This predates Ned Kelly. Now, one of the things your book examines is how this is not only a film about the period it's setting, but it also reflects the period during which it was made. So given all that, how do you describe this film? What kind of film is Mad Dog Morgan? Well, I would describe it, I guess, as a trash art pop gonzo Australian western. <laughs> Finally. Another one of those. Again? <laughs> And it really is a singular work. I mean, is, is there much else in Australia that we can compare this to? 
Um, well, the character of Morgan, and I do say this in the book, he sort of stands in a line of crazy anti-heroes, of which we have quite a few in Australian cinema, who, who stand outside the law and but do it in quite buffoonish or, or ridiculous ways often. And um, Chopper Reed, uh, uh, Chopper would be an example of that. And I also think of um, Ralph Deheer's Bad Boy Bubby, and there are quite a few yeah. others. So I see it as maybe part of an, an alternate tradition in Australian cinema. It's certainly not sort of the mainstream in Australian cinema. And weirdly, it's very different from the representations of Ned Kelly we've had. Mm, indeed. Um, Morgan is not a, a conventional hero and has never been regarded as a conventional hero. He was always seen as a, a sort of violent outsider, even among bushrangers. Um, ben Hall, who was another bushranger around at the time, explicitly said he would not have Morgan in his gag. He said this to the newspapers when the newspapers were reporting that maybe Morgan had joined up with Ben Hall. Yeah, wow. And beyond Australian cinema as well, um, one of the films you reference in in your book is Dead Man, which Mm. I really latched on to because you've got this fascinating relationship between Morgan and the Billy character played by David Gopilil, a Mm. very early role for him, which is very similar to the the relationship Johnny Depp has with the Nobody character in Dead Man. And you describe both these films as acid westerns. Mm. I'm really curious to hear more about this idea of what an acid western is. Well, in Acid Western, this term was, I think, coined by the, the critic, the American critic, Jonathan Rosenbaum, and he was talking about how Westerns in the late 60s sort of went totally crazy, really, and they became sort of about the hippie era in a disguised form, and they were about people, you know, standing outside civilization, going wild, um, kind of, you know, battling authority, all the things that, you know, the counterculture was all about, but presenting it in, in that sort of allegorical form of a Western. And he talks about films like uh, Glenn and Randa and about uh, Monty Hellman's films. The ones with Jack Nicholson, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, yes. And I, th- I think that's also a um, an international phenomenon, and you can see it in, um, in the films of Jodorowsky, which I think Rosenbaum also talks about, but also in European films and, and elsewhere. And it, it, it's really, I think, about stripping down the idea of a narrative to the sort of absolute basics of a, a guy in a landscape sort of battling the world. Yeah, so I'm getting shivers just <laughs> imagining again just just the way that these figures work in their respective films. Mm. And look, you've, I mean, the three figures who really loom large in your book are the real life Dan Morgan, mm. so Dennis Hopper who who played Morgan in the film, and the film's director Philippe Moira. Am I saying that right? I think it's Philippe Moira. Philippe Moira, yeah. Now, given that Morgan is long dead, Hopper died five years ago, how did you research these men? How did you get to know them? Because you really get into their minds in this book. Well, I, I wouldn't say I got into Dan Morgan's mind because he is, <laughs> he is an enigmatic character and yeah. was at the time. Nobody knew much about him. He worked alone mostly. If he had any associates, they weren't talking and they're probably, you know, I mean, obviously they're long dead now, but even at the time, nobody knew much about him. And um, so he, he was a sort of um, ghostly figure in, in sort of on the edges of Australian history. Um, but what I could find out about him, I found out mostly through um, Trove, the, um, the National Library of Australia's um, website, which allows you really to go back and look at all the um, uh, press coverage of the time and track you know, his appearances. And he was never out of the papers for 
the year and a half, which is all his career really lasted for as a bushranger, he was in the papers every week. You know, Morgan's held up this this sheep station, or he's been bailing up travellers on the road. He's here, there, everywhere. Oh, maybe it wasn't Morgan, maybe it was somebody else, but he looked like Morgan. And you know, he was always um, you know saying things to the papers, being boastful. He was a celebrity, as as is shown in the film. That is absolutely true. He was a celebrity. So Morgan was. His, the real Morgan, I can't research, but the, the Morgan who was created by the media is certainly very easy to find out about. Um, as far as Hopper goes, I mean, his, um, his legend, again, is very well documented. Uh, the closest I got... To, to the real Hopper, I guess, was speaking to his assistant, um, Satya Delamanitu, who um, was his assistant for something like 40 years and is, uh, is quite a character in himself. And through Mora, I was able to, um, to get him on the phone and uh, kind of get, I guess, a little bit of a picture of what it might be like to talk to Hopper just because I think they were so close and such you know, good friends for 40 years that, that a little bit of um, Hopper's character might have rubbed off on, on Satcher, and who knows, maybe vice versa. Yeah. We are talking to Jake Wilson about his new book on the film Mad Dog Morgan. There's a number of um, key scenes in the film that, that you, you keep coming back to in, in, your, in your book, and they're sort of pivotal scenes... I suspect all have. I think they all have some kind of sexual association. Mm. Sometimes in a very dark, violent way. So you, you, some of these scenes are Morgan's rape in jail, uh, which was invented for the film. I believe there's yes. no historical grounding that happened. Um, there's the very odd scene with the seductive barmaid, mm. and then there's the dream of the man on fire, mm. um, and of course the, uh, Morgan's last stand. Of all these scenes, what do you think is the quintessential scene that, for you, is the entry point into Mad Dog Morgan? Well, for me, there were two. Um, one. Is the, the man on fire scene, which yep. is notorious because of the way it was shot, where the stuntman Grant Page was set on fire and leapt into a, a, a lake, and it was actually filmed twice because the first time he um, he got too burnt to leap, and he he, just, he was um, spitting blood when he came up um, the second time, uh, but. What grabbed me about that was when I first saw the film, I, I didn't know what it meant, mm. and. Every person I interviewed about the film, I said, what do you think this, this means? I know, you know, it's a great shot. You went to a lot of effort to do it, but what the hell does it mean? And most people said, don't ask me. Um, some people <laughs> had ideas. Most people didn't feel the need to ask. And in the end, I think I came up with about five different interpretations, all of which are in the book. Um, and it, it seems to go very, very deep into, um, into Mora's analysis of, um, of Morgan's psyche. But I don't think that Mora himself entirely knew what it meant at the time. It really is a sort of surrealist thing where he was trusting his unconscious. And that was certainly one of the, the drives behind the book was to try and get as close into that, as deep into that as I could. Um, the other scene is uh, the scene of Morgan's last stand at, um, at a homestead called Pitch Elba where he's um, ordering uh, one of the, the daughters of the household which he's bailing up to play the piano and he becomes very emotional and starts sort of this monologue about how he's missed out on so much and how beautiful the music is and how wonderful you know everything is and all this time everybody's kind of just frozen in fear of him. He's trying to kind of you know jolly them along and pretend that everything's great when it's you know this bizarre situation and that's 
to me, it's such a strangely emotional scene. I mean, that, when I, the first time I saw the film, it just sort of carried that away with me, the sense of this guy who's in some ways sensitive and otherwise totally insensitive. He's wasted his life, and yet he has the sense that he's, um, he's become a legend and there's a glory in that. All these complex kind of mixed feelings which you get out of the scene, that, that I guess is the other quintessential scene for me. You mentioned um, in, in the book, and we've also mentioned it here, that um, Morgan's relationship with the character of Billy, played by David Gopalil, mm. and the racial politics, and it's something you pick up time and again in, in the book, is something that really struck me on a, on a first viewing, and I've only watched it for the first time this week. I mean, early on in the film, there's a, a massacre of of Chinese uh, Australians in, in sort of an encampment, um, and you also mentioned, and I had no idea, that Mora was writing a screenplay, and he stopped off at Cape Town on mm. his way back from, from London to, to Melbourne, and you sort of suggest that in some way that I guess the experience of apartheid may have tapped into the, the, the way in which this film explores racial politics? Well, I think the first thing to be said about that is um, Mora's from a, a Jewish um, back, background. His parents um, came from Europe after the Second World War, had lived you know, through the, the Nazi period, had been living in France. And it, it, he, all his work, I mean, not just Mad Dog, but all his work is absolutely informed by that background. And um, the other thing to be said is it's an extremely multicultural film, um, not just for its time, but in general, in terms of its depiction of 19th century Australia. You've got a French character, you've got Chinese characters, German characters, this whole um, English-Scottish, this whole multicultural background. And Moore said to me that he said there were no Australians in 1850, unless you know, you're talking about Indigenous Australians. There were, there were people from all over, but there was no Australians. And there was you know, a great deal of, of racial tension and conflict, which, you know, it's, is obviously true. I mean, this this film portrays Australia as a, a deeply racist society on multiple fronts. I mean, not least the, the conflict between the, the English and the Irish, which is kind of what Morgan's acting out. He's, he's Irish and he has the feeling that his his oppressors are, are English by and large, or they're, they're Irish who, who've joined with the oppressors. And I think that... Um, Definitely not just that that stop off in um, in South Africa, which I honestly don't know much about beyond Mora mentioning it, and he's mentioned it in print. But Mora's entire background kind of predisposed him to be very conscious of this and this to be sort of to the forefront of his mind and, and of the film. Now, we, we just alluded to then um, some of the violence against the Chinese characters mm. in the film. This is a scene quite early in the film that's really quite shocking and startling with how incredibly violent it is and the style of violence. I think you mentioned it's, it's something that audiences are more used to seeing a George A. Romero film. It, it, it's almost schlocky. And I'm wondering if we're sort of getting on to now the idea, uh, the, the topic of the film's reputation. Is that why for so long the film has sort of been somewhat dismissed as a, a, a schlocky film? and not something more prestigious? Well, there's a, there's a few things to be said about that. First is that at the time it was not dismissed. I mean, it was reviewed, you know, very respectfully in Australian papers and overseas too, um, which didn't translate into box office to any great degree, but it was, it was not dismissed. But on the other hand, I think you have to say there's something about Moore's work in general, and this film in particular, which is deliberately confrontational and almost tasteless and he has said uh, good taste is the enemy of art and part of this comes from the fact he started as a, a painter and he started off in really a kind of pop art tradition and you know he's very into comic books and so on and science fiction films and all these sort of low art kind of forms and I think he's very 
uh, consciously about sort of mingling high art and low art and kind of jumbling it up in a way that makes you uncomfortable. So he's going to address this these issues of racism and, and Australian history and so on, but he's not going to do it in a kind of tasteful way where it's it's easy to take. He's going to do it in a in a way that seems, yeah, as you say, aggressive and almost schlocky. I love that um I noticed that when I was researching just around your book and just the film itself that trauma released this in the US that was distributed by Troma and that made me think a lot about that observation as well that I picked up about George Romero that that violence being comparable to more to a Romero film yeah, the trauma cut. I mean, they released a version which is missing some of some of the more, um, I guess, experimental scenes, like the the um, director camera introduction by uh, Jack Thompson. I love how you talk about that in the book, comparing it to Goddard's Made in USA, that kind of comic aesthetic. Mm. There was a bit more about that in the book, which is cut. But when you see that shot, to me, it really jumps out at you. Those two um, policemen, kind of uh, silhouettes, blue silhouettes, set against a white wall. It, it's clearly. Um, no, sort of crib from Goddard, the look of, of that particular shot. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he's um, he's very conscious of people like Goddard. I mean, when you, you meet um, Moore, he's somebody with a very, very wide range of um, of cultural reference that is going to go from Goddard to talking about um, films like The Wolfman and, you know, talking about silent cinema and, and all sorts of things. And he, he draws from them, I think, pretty freely without worrying about, you know, what's prestigious and what's not. We've been talking about Mad Dog Morgan and the new book by Jake Wilson on Mad Dog Morgan. It, it is a really extraordinary film that, as you said, is such a, a mesh of, of styles and influences and ideas, and I think your book really does it justice. It's sort of... We get an enormous amount of background detail to the book, but also some really fascinating analysis, um, which, is, which is why we enjoy reading and reviews in The Age as well. Australian screen classics, Mad Dog Morgan, is out now. You can head to the publisher's website at currency.com.au for more information. We've been talking to the book's author, film reviewer Jake Wilson. Jake, thank you very much for being on Plato's Cave tonight. Thank you. And can I just mention the film will be screening at the Melbourne Film Festival um, next month month as part of uh, David Gopal retrospective. Wednesday 12th of August we, you can see Mad Dog Morgan in 35 mil on the big screen. Glorious 35 mil. Yeah, yeah. not to be missed. We forgot to mention that Frank Fring is also in this wonderful film so let's hear from Frank now. Well you are quite simply the nicest person in the world aren't you? So why haven't you subscribed you miserable Bastard. Three triple R. Well, Roy Ward Baker's The Vampire Lovers is a 1970 British horror film from the legendary Hammer Films, the first of their Karnstein... Karnstein? Karnstein. Karnstein trilogy. Karnstein trilogy. Careful. With Lust for a Vampire in 1971 and Twins of Evil in 1972. Twins of Evil, I'm going to flag from the outset as an amazing film. This is... um particularly worth noting because it starred identical twin Playboy playmates, Marion Madeline Coddleson. There you go. The tidbits are flowing already. Oh, I'm sorry, what was that? <laughs> Can we... Th- okay, the boob jokes will be happening. Tid, mm-hmm. tidbits. Sorry, okay. <laughs> 
Vampire Lovers stars Hammer regular Peter Cushing, but it's the women who are centre stage. And this film is probably your best introduction in a lot of ways to grasping why the women of Hammer Horror are such a big deal. Ingrid Pitt, Madeline Smith, Kate O'Mara, they own this film. Um, They love the camera, the camera loves them, and I guess most importantly, the camera loves them loving each other in nimble, saucy ways. Based on Sheridan Le Fanu's famous novella Carmilla from 1871, The Vampire Lovers... um, is set in 19th century Austria and follows Ingrid Pitt's character who uses both the names Carmilla and Marcilla as she drinks blood and snogs her way around the countryside, basically. Um, She's kind of just bewitching, groping and eventually killing nice young girls like Laura Pippa Steele, who's the niece of Peter Cushing's General von Spielsdorf. Ingrid Pitt's blood-sucking lesbianism shows no sign of slowing down until Peter Cushing hooks up with a vampire, not hooks up, but (laughs) teams up uh, with vampire hunter Baron Hartog, uh, played by Douglas Wilmer, as they attempt to return things to the boring lesbian vampireless status quo. This is a boob fest, plain and simple, but it's kind of done in the in the way that only Hammer can do. There's something really beautiful and almost quite coy or shy about the kind of sexuality um, that's represented in these films. The Hammer films are certainly the product of a very different time. Um, you wouldn't say that they're particularly contemporary-feeling movies, but if you're new to them and are you keen to discover them and to sort of suss out what all the fuss is about and why... Kate Bush, of all people, would sing a a hymn to the wonderful world of of Hammer Horror. Um, This, I mean, Vampire Lovers is a great place to start. This trilogy is a really good place to start. Also, Twins of Evil, these are really beautiful films. Yeah, look, I'm still a relative newcomer to the world of Hammer, and I'm desperately sort of catching up one title at a time. And I haven't seen... Title? (laughs) One title at a time. Um, Look, I think this film is fascinating, not necessarily so much of what it is, and it doesn't stand up as... The, my, my favourite of what I've seen so far. I think the other film from from this director, actually, Roy Ward Baker, his film in 1967, Quatermass and the Pit, which we reviewed on Plato's Cave, I think, a couple of years ago, I thought that was out, outstanding and that was such a wonderful almost entry point for me into the world of, of Hammer. But I've heard this film being described as, as ushering in a new era for Hammer horror, this sort of the softcore era, and I've heard it referred to the era of bloodshed and bosoms, although I prefer my term, which is jugs and jugulars, which is definitely appropriate, <laughs> (laughs) think in the context of this but i think you're right in pointing out that the style in which they approached the lesbian sexuality and the vampiress and that sort of the woman as as evil threat that needs to be eliminated in this is done in a really touching manner there's something almost innocent and naive about the way in which they approach it and it doesn't feel like it's just there for shameless titillation it actually feels like the director oh there i go again the director's actually engaged in these female characters there's a genuine sense of connection and empathy with the female characters and not just the um, the victims, but also the kind of the villainess type characters, and I think yeah, you're right. The, the women in this film shine. Ingrid Pitt. This is I think this is the first film, although she appeared in a number of Doctor Who episodes. I think in the in the 70s and early 80s, she shines in this film. And again, a character with a a woman with a really fascinating background. We talked about Philip Moore and his background. Ingrid Pitt and her family were interned in a concentration camp in during World War Two. And again, so there's so much of the characters and actors in in these types of films, which is such a rich rich part of cinematic history I think. One of the things that I really like um, about particularly the Hammer films that deal with this sort of softcore lesbianism and even films like um, uh, Daughter of Darkness, the Belgian uh, vampire lesbian film um, and even The Hunger I guess um, in, in a way is that it's it, it almost defamiliarises heterosexual sexuality. I mean the, the, the scenes in this film uh, in Vampire Lovers between the women doesn't seem 
strange or perverse. Exactly. It, it, it actually feels much warmer um, and much sexier and kind of, and I use the term hesitantly, you know, I'm doing finger quotes, which you can't see on radio, but quote, unquote, it feels more normal. Um, and I, 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 it's, I, yeah, it's hard in a way to kind of argue for these films to be necessarily progressive because they are so exploitative and so kind of aggressively um, not trying to hide that. But at the same time, there is something about on a really almost molecular level, the way that they represent sexuality that I think is, is actually really interesting. Particularly in contrast to the way or the encounters between men and women in this film. Which are just awkward and uncomfortable and creepy. Really mm. creepy, really awkward. And almost there's a, there's a point where there's a character in the end who confronts the Ingrid Pitt character um, as if to sort of say the game is up. And you're actually siding, or I was at the time, with the Pitt character. Because oh, he's so kind of menacing and, and, and horrible to everyone else and particularly the other, the other female characters who we've seen in the narrative. So I think you're, you're right. And this is one of those, I guess, those arguments that comes up in documentaries like and books like Celluloid Closet is we're we just trying to find a, a kind of queering the text pleasure in this film. And I don't think it's just that. I don't think with this film it's just a matter of saying, look, we're getting a glimpse of, of non-normative sexuality and we, we have to kind of embrace the, the, you know, the, the peanuts that are being thrown out to us. I think there's actually something quite genuine and, and, and heartfelt in the way in which um, Baker approaches this subject matter. He's very literate. He's very aware of the history of that that lesbian vampire in film going back to Dracula's Daughter from the 30s, which I still think is one of the most interesting of the universal Hammer horror films, um, which initially, I believe, was read as a, as a kind of repressed, you know, evil, you know, monstrous lesbianism film. But in retrospect, over years, people have actually kind of turned around and said, actually, no, it's quite quite a progressive, quite radical queer text um, to look at it from, from a, a current-day perspective. I want to talk a bit... You mentioned Roy Wood Baker. I want to talk a little bit about, about him because he's not a name that will be familiar to a whole bunch of people. There's a wonderful Melbourne-based um, film academic called Jeff Mayer who's written a book about... Uh, Roy Wood Baker and I had the uh, privilege of being taught by Jeff um, when I was an undergraduate at La Trobe University studying film. Now Jeff's book on Roy Wood Baker um, just introduced me to a whole bunch of films by this guy. He just has the most incredible career. Started off with a film noir with John Mills in 1947 called The October Man. Then went on to an amazing movie. If you're a Marilyn Monroe fan, you've got to chase down this movie called Don't Bother to Knock from 1952, which is basically a precursor to the psycho babysitter film. It's it's almost a horror film. Um, Very, very different Marilyn Monroe to the one that we think we know. Um... He, of course, quite famously, I guess most famously, made a film called A Night to Remember in 1958, which is a very famous movie about the Titanic, which, of course, James Cameron riffed um, quite openly on, on A Night to Remember. He's, he's acknowledged that that was a huge influence on, on his famous film. 1961, Roy Wood Baker made a, f- a film called The Singer, Not the Song, which pretty much ruined his career. Um, it's an incredible film, not necessarily a good film, um, but for 1961, it's Dirk Bogard black leather clad gay cowboy he made a gay cowboy film in 1961 people weren't cool with it it didn't really work out for Roy Ward Baker's career after that and after that he ended up kind of doing lots of Hammer stuff um, you know the big movie you know no, no more working with Marilyn Monroe he ended up doing a lot of TV did things like the Avengers TV series but yeah did Hammer and Amicus but even for Hammer he did some really interesting stuff as you said he did Quartermass in the Pit he did the anniversary with Betty Davis, uh, Moon, Zoo, Moon Zero Two, which is a great space western if you're into such things. Um, and he probably did, he did a couple of other Hammer films, but probably one of my favourite Hammer films, which is called Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde from 1971, which, as the title indicates, um, kind of queers up again, you know, so that, that um, you've got a character that, that is both male and female. So he really brings this really interesting queer dynamic again to these 
pretty familiar kind of horror tropes. Um, that yeah, I think there's something really interesting and quite radical in a way going on with a lot of Roy Ward Baker's films, particularly on that that kind of um, sexual politics front. Well, there's, there's a commentary tag that I was listening to today on on the film, and he was actually asked by the the host, "Why do you think you were selected for this film?" And the host is basically sort of angling towards this idea that he had worked with such strong female characters before, and he mentions both the Marilyn Monroe and, and the Betty Davis work as as the potential of why he was the appropriate fit or the right fit for this film and having watched it and without having seen the the, the Monroe or the, the Betty Davis films you can kind of see that he has something about and look even in Quatermass there's female characters in there that are treated really well I think so yeah I think you're right this director is someone that we need to oh, I certainly need to catch up on so my, my to watch list just got even longer tonight <laughs> you've been listening to Plato's Cave that Sugar Film is available on DVD, Blu-ray and various digital download and streaming services through Madman Entertainment. We also looked at Mad Dog Morgan. That's available on DVD through Umbrella Entertainment and it will be screening at the Melbourne International Film Festival on Wednesday 12th of August as part of their David Gollipal retrospective program. And Jake Wilson's book on Mad Dog Morgan is part of the Australian Screen Classic series published by Currency Press and it's available now. And of course we looked at The Vampire Lovers. That's available on DVD, Blu-ray and Google Play through Shock Entertainment. Big thank you to Jake Wilson for joining us tonight. We'll be back next week looking at a new Australian documentary on a Hollywood costume design icon. And we may even look at another Marvel superhero film. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.